Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering the end of the book of Acts. We are going to be covering Acts chapters 22 through 28. We are picking up the middle part of Paul's third missionary journey. In the previous podcast, we got into a little bit of Acts chapter 21. This is where Paul's arrested in Jerusalem because he is accused by the Jews of bringing the Gentiles into the temple precinct. This then causes a riot in Acts chapter 21, verse 28, and then he's arrested and imprisoned, but he continues to preach the gospel even to the people that put him in prison, to his captors and even to his fellow prisoners. He is then taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the coast, and he stands trial before Felix, and then Festus, and then finally King Agrippa, But he is eventually sent to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar. On his way to Rome, he is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And in the 28th chapter of Acts, he arrives in Rome. He lives in his own rented quarters where he continues to preach the gospel to anybody who will talk to him. He meets with a ton of Jewish leaders and explains the gospel to them, but many of them reject it in Rome. And then the book of Acts ends with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus. So that's kind of the overview of these chapters. Now, just know that after Acts 28, Paul continues to live and to preach, and there's a whole corpus of traditions about Paul after this story in Acts 28 that we just don't have in the canonized texts, but his story is told in Christian history and in Christian tradition. And so Acts ends with that, with Paul in Rome living in his own rented quarters, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me emphasize that a little bit. We're only five books into the New Testament. We've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now we're into the fifth book of the Old Testament. And you know that there's a lot of books left, and you're probably just thinking, hey, we're just beginning the history of the New Testament. But the reality is, is everything after Acts are epistles written either by Paul or by church leaders. And then we've got John's Revelation, which is just kind of a vision of the future. So the history of the New Testament ends in this podcast. Everything else is just epistles. And it's going to end with a baton toss. Just like in a race, one runner is done. And he's going to hand the baton on to another runner who's going to finish the race. These chapters in the New Testament are when the baton gets handed towards us. Now, we don't take it until Joseph Smith's day, but this is where the baton is going to be handed to the Gentiles. Gentiles meaning not the Jews that were in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Joseph Smith will be the chief Gentile who then takes that baton organizes the kingdom again on earth for the final, cross the finished line, Jesus comes and we begin a millennial day. So Paul is rejected over and over and over again, and I just think there was a special bond between Joseph Smith and Paul. On one occasion, Joseph was saying, oh, Paul, yeah, and then described him vividly. He's this tall, as if to say, I know him. I know him well. 
And I think what we're going to study today is what really connected Joseph Smith to Paul, and we'll see if we can emphasize that as we go. So let's jump into 21, which was really last week's podcast, but notice in verse 30, all the city was moved and people ran together. And they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. Verse 31, many went about to kill him, which is so ironic because how did Paul begin? He went about trying to destroy the Christians, and now his life is going to be sought. End of verse 31, all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, does that sound familiar? Can you think of a time previously when all Jerusalem was in an uproar? And there were some that were yelling, this man is the Christ, and others that were yelling, no, he's an imposter, and all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Sound familiar? Paul has now jumped into that space. He is now the defender of Christ. And the very people who loved Christ love Paul, and the very people who hated Christ are hating Paul. And so he's going to be beaten He's going to be protected. He's going to be loved and hated at the same time. That's kind of the end of chapter 21. It seems like in 21, there's kind of a misunderstanding because they see him in the temple. That's 2127. And it says that the, the Jews there stirred up the people crying out, this is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. Now, I don't know if he's brought Gentiles into the place where they're not allowed in the temple precinct, but that's the accusation that they bring against him. And that would have really riled people up. Even today, the Temple Mount is a place where there's a lot of feeling, and that's a great way to rile people up. And they bring him, and they're about to kill him, but then they bring him to this guy, uh, Lucius, in the Greek is his name. He's the chief captain, that's verse 33, Achilliarchos. He's the head guy over all the military men there. Literally, it means the guy over a thousand men. So somewhere between 600 and a thousand men Lucius is going to be in charge. He's got to figure out, okay, what do I do with this guy? And that's where we get into chapter 22 and 23, is this discussion between this military leader and Paul, and Paul's going to defend himself, and he's going to recount his conversion experience in the 22nd chapter. Now, since we're here, let's just talk about Lucius just for a minute. Now, I know the text calls him Lysias, and that's fine. You can pronounce him either way. Uh, What we need to know is that he's fair. He was um, a military Roman commander. He's portrayed in Luke's narrative as a fair-minded Roman military leader doing his job. He's going to treat Paul with fairness, and he's going to respect him. He is mentioned several times during this chronicle between 21 and 23 of Acts. We learn about his name in Acts 23, verse 26. So he's going to be having this conversation, and you might be reading this going, okay, who is this guy? And then his name is mentioned by Luke in Acts 23, verse 26. According to Acts 21, verses 31 through 33, he was the commander of the Roman troops stationed in Jerusalem. He is there to intervene when Paul is falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, and there's this riot, and so Lucius has to sort this out. And so what does he do? First, he brings Paul into the barracks for his own protection. First, I got to like bring him out of this situation and figure out what's going on. Then there's this 
part in here where he asks him, are you an Egyptian? Because apparently there was some Egyptian rebellion going on there, and he was assuming that Paul was part of this. And Paul's like, no, I'm not that guy. Later then, in Acts 23, Lucius again intervenes when Paul's life is threatened by a group of Jews. There's this plot to kill him, and and Paul finds out about it. And then Lucius is told, hey, there's this assassination plot against Paul. And so Lucius takes Paul and protects him under armed escort, and he sends him to Caesarea for his own protection to be tried by the governor. And so big picture... He is portrayed as a fair and just commander. Um, I call him one of the good guys. And so, and here's a couple reasons why I think Luke is putting this in here. I think Luke is portraying this Roman military leader in this way to show the people on the outside, the outsiders, hey, Christianity is not going to subvert the Roman Empire. Hey, we're your friends. We can get along. And by the way, Christian doctrine and Roman Empire can coexist. We can live in the Roman Empire, and we can believe in Jesus. And look, here's one of your own guys that sees Paul for who he is. He's not a threat to you guys. Because remember, the book of Acts, yes, it is written to us. But I think in Luke's mind, he's communicating to his world. And so seeing Lucius in this light, in this context, will help us to see, okay, how can we communicate our message? How can we as Latter-day Saints live in this world where there's all these things going on? We have to swim in this same water and show people, okay, we may disagree religiously, but I'm not here to undo the way you live in your world either. And that leads us to Paul's defense. The end of chapter 21, Paul makes a request. End of verse 39, he says, suffer me to speak unto the people. Let me speak to those that are in Jerusalem. So standing up in chapter 22, he's going to defend himself. Men and brethren, verse 1, men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I now make unto you. Now, let me put ourselves in this situation. The Latter-day Saints are often persecuted by a world that doesn't see that they belong to them. We don't belong with the Christians. We don't belong with the non-Christians. We're so closely tied to Jesus that you would think we belong with the Christians, and we don't. The Christians do not accept us as one of their own, and yet we don't belong with the group that are not the Christians. It's kind of like Paul, where he's like, I'm Jewish, and I believe in Jesus, and the Jews reject me, and Rome doesn't know what to do with me, and Jesus was Jewish, and Paul's point is, no, really, if you guys really understood the, your own scripture, you would believe in Jesus. And yep. so Paul's in this double bind, like, what do I do? And the, his only recourse is, I just can tell you what I know. Here's what, I, here's what I've seen, here's what I know. And that's our only recourse. That's exactly the position we're in, is that's our story. The only thing we can do is say, here's what we know. Here's what we have. Here's what we've been given. And here's what we know. It fascinates me that Joseph Smith commented in his history, end of verse 22 of Joseph Smith history, he, he talks about the bitter persecution against him, and then he adds, this was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. How do we live in this world? And so we find great comfort in the fact that Paul simply told his story. Chapter 22 is Paul's first telling, and he starts with, look, I was one of you. Verse 3, I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. 
and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous towards God as ye are all this day. I was one of you. And I think what he's trying to say is if you'd had the experiences that I've had, you would be right where I am. I was in your shoes. I was one of you. And then verse 4, I persecuted this way into death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So then Paul says, I was on a journey to Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a light round about me. I fell onto the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecuted. Now, do you notice what Paul's doing? He's simply telling his story. Jesus came and asked me to join his cause, and I have. Verse 10, what shall I do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee all things which are appointed for thee to do. Then he talks about going in and meeting Ananias, and then Ananias helps recover his sight. And then Ananias says, verse 14, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one and shouldest hear the voice from his ma- of his mouth, thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. All we have to do is tell our story. And so we talk about the first vision, and we talk about the Book of Mormon, and we hand people the Book of Mormon, and we say, I know what I know. So in Acts chapter 22... As he's explaining, you know, hey, this is what I know, there's this discussion about his citizenship. If you go to verse 25, as they that bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, Paul knows the answer, and the answer is no. You can't scourge somebody who's a Roman citizen without a fair trial. That's just facts. And so, When the centurion heard that in verse 26, he went and told the chief captain, and he said, take heed what thou doest, this man is a Roman. And the chief captain came and he said, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And so there's this discussion about his citizenship, and there's some really good commentary we put in the show notes about Lucius's background. You see, a lot of people could actually pay for their citizenship, and Paul, he basically says in verse 28, hey, I was born free. I was born a citizen. And so now Lucius knows, hey, we're dealing with a special circumstance. This individual as a Roman citizen is entitled to certain rights. And so this is where we get on the road to Caesarea and eventually to Rome, because Paul's going to appeal to Caesar, and in so doing, he has a right to be taken to those in authority and be given a fair trial. And so chapter 22 ends with Paul in custody in Jerusalem, waiting to be taken to Rome to stand trial. But he's still in Jerusalem, and he has to deal with the stronghold that put Jesus to death. 
And that's the council. That's Ananias and the council. Yeah, that's what's going on here. He's going to stand before the Sanhedrin. Now, as a review, this is the leadership in Jerusalem. There's 70 of them. The tie-breaking vote is the high priest, the 71st member. And there's some Sadducees and Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees, as a reminder, remember, they believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. And so Paul brilliantly testifies of the resurrection in verse 6, where he says, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. The son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. You see what he's doing? He's dividing the Pharisees from the Sadducees. And he says, the reason you guys are bringing me to you is because I believe in the resurrection. Okay, what has he done? He already now has half the room with him because the Pharisees are like, yeah, what's the big deal? And you can see the Pharisees in the room looking at the Sadducees going, Why are we talking to this guy? That's what verse 7 says. There arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. That's exactly what Paul's doing. There it is. And so the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. So then the point, verse 9, there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were part of the Pharisees' part arose and strove and said, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. It seems to me that the Pharisees are okay with Paul seeing Jesus. They're okay with either Jesus being resurrected or Paul seeing him as an angel because the Pharisees don't disagree with that doctrine. And so what Paul's doing is he's using their understanding and he's speaking to them after the manner of their language in a way they can understand to say, hey, my faith is not irrational. I have rational faith. And I think part of what we want to do with this podcast, I think this is part of what we're trying to do, is to say it is rational to believe in the things that we believe in. I think as Latter-day Saints, the more that we can try and communicate to people in a manner they can understand, a way that they can relate, in a language that they get, hey, this is what we believe, um, I think it benefits us. I think it helps the church. Like the Savior said, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Take the light and don't stick it under a bushel, but put it on a candlestick. So we have to do it, but we have to be careful. We have to do it in a way that communicates to the people ideas and concepts that they can relate with. So that's what he does. And then Paul has this beautiful experience with the Savior, that he, Paul, will testify of him, Jesus, in Rome. And then we get Paul's transfer from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima to stand trial before Governor Felix. So that's big picture of what's going on in the 23rd chapter. And I think one of the crowning verses of this chapter is verse 11. The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. I think what the Lord is saying is, there are some challenging days ahead of you. But I love that phrase, the Lord stood by him. Trial and persecution is not evidence that God has abandoned us. He goes with us through trial and persecution. And in every case, he says the same thing, be of good cheer, Paul. He's saying, I'm with you. We're not done. We're going to Rome. And I will be with you the whole time. Paul is swimming in the same water that Nephi, son of Helaman, was swimming in. 
Nephi had to preach uphill, upstream, against the current, and he was faithful in doing so. In Helaman chapter 10, the Lord finally says, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done. For I have beheld how thou hast with unwearyingness, thank Paul, thou hast with unwearyingness declared the word which I have given unto thee and to this people. And thou hast not feared them, and hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will and to keep my commandments. And I think that could very well be describing Paul as well as Nephi, that I asked you to do something tough and you have been ever faithful in doing so. Now I am with you to the very end. I'm sure Paul would have preferred maybe just a nice little retirement in an adult community somewhere near a golf course. But that's not the end of Paul. Paul's life is going to be taken for this cause. And there is no doubt, can you imagine the reunion when Paul's life is ended here on earth? Can you imagine the reunion with the Savior on the other side of the veil? Can you see that victory after giving his life for the cause? But that doesn't mean the Lord isn't with him and isn't with us. Hear the Lord say those same words, be of good cheer as he stands by us. And I can't help but just say, if you look in verse 10, this chief captain, afraid that Paul might be hurt, is the mover. He's the leader, this Kiliarchos, this this is Lucius. Lucius is this guy that's going to make sure that Paul's protected. And what if verse 11 is connected to verse 10? What if he's just as important to this story as is Paul and the Lord's moving the pieces? I've once heard it taught now... I laugh because I'm like, I wouldn't want to do it this way. But I've once heard it taught that verse 11 is the Lord's way of saying, hey, Paul, don't worry. You're going to go to Rome, and you're going to preach the gospel, and I'm going to make sure that the Roman Empire pays for it. They're going to feed you. They're going to house you. They're going to transport you. But for me personally, no, I'd rather go myself. Like, it would be no fun to go as a prisoner. But it is true. Like, the Roman Empire takes him, and they make sure that he gets there. And it probably... You know, as you mentioned, verse 11, Bryce, it probably brought a lot of peace to Paul to know, okay, um, maybe this isn't the ideal way to get to Rome, but we're getting to Rome. So after Paul has that experience with the Lord, we read in verse 13 of Acts 23 that there's a conspiracy of about 40 Jews that basically say, hey, we're not going to eat until we've killed him. And so Paul's nephew learns about it. That's in verse 16, 17. And the news is brought to him, hey, there's this assassination plot that's going to happen. They've taken this oath that they're going to kill you. And so that is then communicated to Lucius and then under guard of about 200 soldiers, that's verse 23, Paul is escorted to Caesarea Maritima for his own protection, and he's going to be brought before Felix the governor. Now, when he's brought to Felix, Felix is a complicated character. He was a Roman governor who served as the procreator of Judea from about 52 to 60 AD. So that kind of gives us the time period of where Paul is here historically. And according to historical accounts, Felix was originally a slave who was then later freed, and he rose to prominence in the Roman government. 
He was known for being pretty ruthless, and he was accused of using his position as a governor to extort people. And we kind of see this here in the text. Felix was also criticized for his handling of frequent uprisings and riots that occurred in Judea during his tenure. Now, just know, being in charge there is hard, and there were riots. And so sometimes these leaders had to make decisions. Hey, how are we going to handle this? And it wasn't always clean. It was Oftentimes, it was messy. And so in Acts 23, Felix is depicted as the governor who receives Paul after he's taken into custody and he's brought by Lucius to him. Felix hears his case. He's going to listen to the accusations, but ultimately Felix is going to delay what to do with him. He's going to put it off. Felix is described as having some knowledge of the way. It's going to be called the way. Remember, that's Christianity. But at the end of the day, Felix is more interested in getting a bribe from Paul than he is in rendering justice. We're going to see this here where he basically wants a bribe. He's portrayed as a complicated figure, in my opinion. He has a reputation for both cruelty and corruption. He also represents the Roman authority that dominated Judea during the time of the early Christian church. And his actions towards Paul and other Christians, it's going to help give us an important context for the broader political and religious tensions of this period. You see, it's not just the way or the Christians that are that are moving things. There are a lot of Jews that have messianic expectations. There's a lot of Jews that want Rome out. And so sometimes Paul is going to be lumped in with them. And these local leaders and governors have to sort this out and go, okay, you're Jewish. What kind of Jew are you? What stripe are you? Are you a zealot? What are you? And then as Christianity rises to prominence, they start asking these questions, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? And one of the messages that I believe Luke is trying to portray in the book of Acts, in this historical record, is, hey, the Christians are not out to revolt. We're not trying to overturn the tables of Rome. Now, in the 24th chapter, Paul is going to relate many of his experiences, The main point that I want to emphasize is when he does this, we read in verse 25, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment that was to come, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent him the oftener and communed with him. Uh, Translation, Felix doesn't want to put Paul in prison, but he doesn't know what to do with him. The bottom line, he wants a bribe, but Paul doesn't pay it. And so two years are going to pass while he's here. And during this time, Felix is going to be succeeded by Portius Festus. So Felix is going to leave Paul in custody as a favor to the Jews That's basically what the the end of chapter 24 says. It says that he was willing to show the Jews a pleasure and he left Paul bound. I mean, that's not, in my opinion, the best translation. He's essentially leaving him in custody as a political favor to the Jews. But if Paul would have paid enough money to Felix and paid him a bribe, Paul would have been freed. But Paul's like, we're not doing that. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so Portius Festus is going to take over in the governorship here. And that's... Don't be confused. Festus and Felix sound similar, but they're different people. Right, not the same guy. So we've we've been doing Felix, now we move into Festus. And who was he? Portius Festus was a Roman 
governor in this province. He's mentioned here in Acts 24 as the governor who succeeded him when Paul was left in custody. He was appointed by Nero, the emperor, in AD 60 or 61. So the emperor in Rome is going to put Festus in charge. And Festus will serve as a governor until he dies in AD 62. So during his time in office, Festus dealt with a number of political and religious conflicts, including this situation with Paul. And according to this historian, his name is Josephus, we've talked about him before, Festus did what he could to restore peace during his time. Uh, And then Josephus is going to say that uh, Festus is restoring peace, quote, by the vigor of his methods. But then he dies only two years after he's appointed. So Festus was kind of known as being like a strict enforcer and a guy who really wanted to maintain order. But he also had a reputation for being fair and just in dealing with the Jews. And if you think about it, that's kind of who you want. If you're in charge in Rome, you want to put somebody over here that's going to keep the rebellions down, but you also want the locals to think that he's a fair guy. And so that's kind of how he's portrayed, at least according to Josephus. Now, Festus does struggle to understand the complex religious and political issues revolved around Paul's case. I mean, I don't blame him. It probably was pretty difficult. And so Festus is basically going to say, okay, what do I do with Paul? Okay, we're just going to send him to Rome. And so the 25th chapter is Paul standing before Festus and then also Agrippa. And this is basically after two years of being in custody. And that's what's going on in the 25th chapter. Uh, We have him stand before Agrippa, but also this individual named Bernice. This is uh, 2513. And who was Agrippa? He's called the second Agrippa, the young son of the first Agrippa, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Now, King Agrippa is also called king. Uh, He is the king of Chalcis. Agrippa II ruled a small territory in Palestine and collaborated with Roman authorities. Although he advocated for his people, he was also loyal to Rome, and he minted a coin to celebrate Rome's victory over the Jewish rebels. According to Josephus, Agrippa II frequently met with Roman officials, especially when they first arrived in the region. Since he had the power to appoint high priests, Festus could obtain Judean advice that was more significant than that of Paul's accusers. Festus is going to eventually take Agrippa's side in a conflict with the priests. And so Herod Agrippa, or Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, was given the Lebanese ethnarchy of Chalcis by the Emperor Claudius. To this was added other territories, including Galilee and Iturea, in about the year 53. Now, right now, it's about 60 AD, and Paul's going to appear before him. And so if you look at his territory that he's ruling over, part of it included the northern region. Bernice, or Berenice, who is sometimes referred to as Bernice by ancient writers, as Luke does, was the sister of Agrippa. Later, Berenice became the mistress of the Roman general Titus. And remember, Titus is the guy who's going to lay siege to Jerusalem. So Berenice is the sister of Agrippa. She's sitting in Acts 25, verse 13, in the room where Paul is testifying of Jesus. And so the woman who's later going to be connected to a major player in history, 
Titus. This is the guy who's going to wipe out Jerusalem and destroy the temple. This woman is sitting here in this room listening to Paul's testimony. So that's kind of who the players are here in this chapter. Now, is that important? I mean, you know, I think it's important historically, but more important is what Paul does. So Festus doesn't have a lot of witnesses against Paul. He doesn't have a strong accusation to send to Rome, and that's going to make him look like a fool. So he's looking for other witnesses, other things that are written, other testimonials. So with, with Agrippa in town, Festus sees an opportunity for him to add to the charges or add to the testimonial against Paul. So Festus then invites Paul in. Verse 23, on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and the principal men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought forth. Festus then turns to Agrippa and says, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him. But he's basically saying, I need more witnesses. So in verse 26, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord, wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. So now we have Agrippa and Paul. Agrippa then says in the beginning of 26, verse 1, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Now, this is a beautiful moment. Paul in chains before King Agrippa is simply going to tell his story. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all these things whereof I am accused. I beseech thee to hear me patiently. I think there's something to that, and, and I think we need to kindly insist that the world allow us to tell our story. Give us time, hear us out, hear our story patiently. Now Paul tells a story. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation of Jerusalem, know all the Jews which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged of the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Why should it be thought a thing incredible to you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did at Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. 
Whereupon I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice. I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. He doesn't overinflate this, but he also doesn't shy away from his defense. I heard a voice. It was Jesus asking me to join his cause. That's his defense. Simple, but profound. Jesus then says, verse 16, But arise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Now, do you see in all of this kind of a connection to the Latter-day Saints, to Joseph Smith, to each one of you listening to this podcast? I have been called by Jesus to be a witness and a minister. That's my story. And we shouldn't be surprised if it's other people's story as well. I love that Mormon, right in the middle of his history, just jumps in and says, behold, I am called Mormon being called after the land of Mormon, the land by which Alma did establish the church among the people. Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of him to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. That was Mormon's story. That's Paul's story. That's my story. That's your story. All of us are telling a similar story, but the point is, I'm not going to embellish it. I'm not going to make it more than it is, and I'm not going to make it less than it is. I was called of God to preach his gospel, and here I am simply doing what he asked me to do. That's Paul's defense. Now, Jesus goes on and says to Paul, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is in me. That's my job. I have been called to minister and to witness, to open eyes, to turn people to the light, that Christ may forgive them and give them an inheritance of faith. Now watch the result of testimony. And so Agrippa, when Paul is done, now Festus shuts him off as soon as he starts talking about the resurrection. Um, Verse 23, Paul says that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. Festus jumps in and says, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning hath made thee mad. 
He shuts him off at the mention of the resurrection. Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, wherefore whom I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. This thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? And now the famous line, after hearing Paul's defense, Agrippa simply says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You can almost see him sitting there and Paul studying his body language, and Agrippa felt something. And Paul, this is kind of how I read it. I think Paul feels the spirit. He looks at Agrippa and he knows that Agrippa's feeling it. And then Agrippa saying, almost, you've persuaded me to be a Christian. Perhaps he did uh, feel the spirit. And perhaps he was really struggling with what to do with Paul. Now, we do know that because if you look in verse 31, between Festus and Agrippa, they say that, you know what, this guy's done nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Uh, it seems to me that there's no evidence that Paul's bringing Gentiles into the restricted area on Temple Mount. I, I think that that, it doesn't say it here, but I think that they've come to that conclusion. And the, when I read this, you know, I think about the experiences that I've had in my life where I'm teaching things and the spirits there and the audience Sometimes they feel it, and sometimes they don't. But just because you feel the Spirit, it, it doesn't mean uh, that you're converted. It doesn't mean that you're going to act on it. That is part of our individual wills. Everyone has to decide what they're going to do with the message. I like where Elder Bednar was talking about Second Nephi 33, verse 1. The Holy Ghost can bring the words unto your heart, but I, as an individual, have to make the decision, am I going to let it in to my heart to change me? And for me, just because something's true doesn't always mean that they're going to receive it because they have to not only make that choice that they're going to believe it, but that usually requires a change of course, a change of action. And sometimes change is hard. I think about the changes in my life that I've had to make, and usually the ones that bring the most benefit are probably some of the hardest changes. And change can be painful, and sometimes that's how the Lord works with us. He invites us to come to Him, but it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it is part of being in the way. And Paul was he he was all in. Paul was like, you know what? This is the experience I've had and if it takes me to Rome and it takes me to my death, so be it. That's what I'm doing. The end result at the very last verse of chapter 26, Agrippa says to Festus, I'd let him go. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, I would let this man free. I would set him at liberty if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So a very significant defense before Agrippa. Now that defense resonated in the soul of a young Joseph Smith who feels like Paul bound in chains before a group of people who are persecuting him and hating him. But this is significant that Paul's defense was his story. Listen to Joseph's defense. I'm going to read this. I think there's just power in hearing it. Joseph Smith said, However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I have thought since 
that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had had when he saw a light and heard a voice, but still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all of this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision. He knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death, yet he knew and would know to his latest breath that he had both seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him. And all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. Now that was Joseph Smith speaking of Paul. In that spirit, with Paul as an example, now Joseph Smith steps up. Now this is Joseph. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of that light, I saw two personages. And they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecutest me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it. And I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it, lest by so doing I would offend God and come under condemnation. Joseph Smith's defense was simply to tell his story. Joseph said, I've seen the light. I talked to two people, and they have sent me forth to do this work. Now, do you see in that the message to all of us? Our defense is simply to tell our story. God has delivered a book. I have read that book many times. I know that book is divine. I have lived the teachings of that book, and my life has been better. And so here I am, testifying of the light that Joseph saw in that grove of trees, and testifying of the book that's come into my possession. Therefore, I will spend the rest of my life proclaiming that I've read the book, and I know that it's true. And I am trying to, just like Paul was told, I am trying to turn people to the light so that they can receive a witness for themselves. You don't have to believe me. You go read the book for yourself. You go hear the voice for yourself, and you will know of the truth. I think it's very significant that Paul said that his commission was to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified. Let my story lead you to him. You don't get an inheritance because of my story. You have to have your own story. I like that. So after Acts chapter 26, where Agrippa and Festus decide to send Paul to Rome, we have the story of his journey. 
Chapter 27 talks about Paul and other prisoners that are placed under the custody of a centurion whose name is Julius. They board a ship bound for Rome. That's Acts 27, 1 through 2. Then we read about this other guy. In the King James, his name is Aristarchus. In the Greek, he is Aristarchos, and that is a Greek word that means the best ruler. And this character, Aristarchos, is a faithful member of the church. He's a fellow traveler with Paul, and we read about him five times in the New Testament. Uh, He was Macedonian, he comes from Thessalonica, and he probably was a convert to Christianity from Judaism. And Aristarchos is recorded as sailing with Paul and Luke from Caesarea on Paul's long and eventful voyage to Rome. He's with Paul during seven critical years of his life. He probably was with Paul when Paul was in prison in Rome. We know that Paul's friends took turns keeping him company while he was in custody in Rome, and this would account for Paul's mention in his later letters of different, quote, fellow prisoners that were with him when he was in Rome, and Aristarchos would have been one of those guys. Certainly when Paul wrote his letter, known as Colossians, Aristarchos was his companion in prison. We know this because he's mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 10. By the time Paul writes his letter to Philemon, Aristarchos is listed together with Mark and others as Paul's fellow workers in the gospel. This individual is with Paul in some of the toughest times. In verses 3 through 20, after stopping at several ports, the people on the ship encounter a fierce storm that lasts for days, which then threatens to destroy the ship. After verse 20 in Acts 27, Paul reassures the crew and passengers, and he tells these guys that an angel of God has appeared to him, and he promises that everybody on the ship is going to be safe. And then the storm continues. The ship's crew and passengers are adrift in the storm for two weeks as they're working furiously to get stuff off the ship to lighten its load to perhaps save their lives. And so the ship is drifting towards land. And the crew, afraid that they're going to run aground, they start lowering weights to determine how deep the water is. And when they finally get to a space where they think they can anchor, they drop four anchors to slow the ship down and they pray for daylight. And then finally, in the end of the chapter, the ship wrecks and some of the crew attempt to escape in a lifeboat. But Paul warns the centurion that everyone needs to stay on board to stay alive. And so the remaining crew and passengers eat a meal. And then finally, uh, the ship hits a sandbar and starts to break apart. And the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent them from escaping. But the centurion on board stops them. And all 276 people on board make it safely to shore on these busted up pieces of the ship. Uh, It's quite the adventure. So in the 28th chapter, we read about Paul's experience on the island of Malta, where he is bitten by a snake. We read in verse 3 of Acts 28, when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, they came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer. So they kind of had this uh, preconceived notion, this tradition about, you know, if you're bit by a snake, you must be a bad guy. 
And we read in verse 5 that he shook off the snake into the fire and felt no harm. And they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead. But after they had looked a great while, they saw no harm come to him. And they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. And Paul's going to say, no, that's not the case. I'm not a God. So that's kind of the beginning of the 28th chapter. So after Paul has this experience with the snake and Malta, Luke is going to portray Paul's arrival in Rome, his preaching to the Jews and Gentiles there, and the response that the people give him to his message about Christ. Verse 14, it says, so we went towards Rome. And so we read in verse 15 where he says, you know, we came from thence and we went as far as the Appia Forum. And then verse 16 says, we came to Rome. Once again, that's Luke kind of relating this stuff where he's taken to Rome. And then in the end of the chapter, we read that Paul is, in verse 30, two whole years in his own hired house or his own rented house. And he received all that came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And before we get to his final words, before we get to the end of the history as we know it, as it's recorded in the New Testament, let's pause and just maybe talk about what were some of the things he wrote at the end of his life, maybe even right from Rome. What were some of his final messages? And then what have others said about Paul? I like what President Kimball said about the Apostle Paul. I have a great admiration and affection for our brother Paul, our fellow apostle. He was so dedicated, so humble, so straightforward. He was eager, so interested, so consecrated. He must have been personable in spite of his problems, for the people hung on to him with great affection when he was about to leave them. I love Paul, for he spoke the truth. He leveled with people. He was interested in them. I love Paul for his steadfastness, even unto death and martyrdom. I am always fascinated with his recounting of the perils through which he passed to teach the gospel to members and non-members alike. I would throw this one in. This certainly is description of his life. Um, His second epistle to the Corinthians, he writes, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Five times he was whipped. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And yet he would also write to that same group, the Corinthians, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them which love them. He knew both sides of that. He knew the end of the whip, and he knew the visions of eternity. What a man he was, and what a life he lived. In Second Timothy, he wrote, For now I am ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. 
in a paper entitled Paul, The Long Road from Damascus, C. Wilfred Griggs wrote some really interesting things about the traditions about Paul. He asks this question, Griggs says, why doesn't the account continue? I mean, we just drop off in Acts 28, as has been stated earlier. He continues, he says, if Paul had lost his case and his life before the emperor, an account of his martyrdom would have been most appropriate. However, he must not have died at this time. Neither Felix nor Festus nor Agrippa deemed Paul guilty of any crime, let alone worthy of death. Furthermore, Paul is rather optimistic about his future. A number of other evidences hint that Paul was acquitted and he traveled for some time before another imprisonment and death. Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus do not fit the chronology of Acts and therefore must have been written later. From these epistles, one notes that Paul visited Ephesus and then Miletus and then Troas and Corinth and other places. The prison epistles also show that Paul intended to travel to Philippi and other places if he was acquitted. In Romans chapter 15, Paul writes of a planned trip to Spain. And Clement, bishop of Rome at the end of the first century, spoke of Paul traveling to the limits of the West, which certainly would have referred to Spain. Tradition is substantially uniform, however, in stating that sometime in the later part of Nero's reign, Paul was executed in Rome. Behind him, he left the rich treasures of his epistles and the record of his faithful friend Luke, which portrays an example of devoted service and missionary zeal that 20 centuries of time have only burnished brighter. Now, in in concert with Wilfred Griggs's uh, testimony of Paul, and also of his relating of historical sources, for example, Clement, who was the Bishop of Rome at the end of the first century, Paul going to Spain, I think he did. I think Paul went to a lot of places. And the story of Christianity doesn't end in Acts 28. So sometimes, you know, we're asked, where can I read more about this? So uh, Eusebius, who wrote Ecclesiastical History, he was a contemporary of Constantine. And so right around the 300s, okay, so Christianity's been around a while, he gets together and he says, okay, what are the records? We've got to put this together in some kind of story that we could help explain what is Christianity. And so he writes the history of at least the way he sees it, based on tradition and legend and so forth in the scriptures, he kind of puts together ecclesiastical history. I really like that as a source. There's another one called Church History in Plain Language. We'll put these in the show notes for you if you're interested. The reason why I like Church History in Plain Language is it, it is what the title says it is. So many books on Christian history, in my opinion, get a little bit complicated because it is complicated. But I think, okay, if you're coming to the table and you want to get into the discussion, but maybe you're, you're not an expert, I think those are a couple books that I would recommend for first timers who want to get their feet in the water and kind of know the lay of the land. Because the bottom line is, just because the apostles are going to die— that doesn't mean that people still aren't teaching Christ. And remember, the apostles did give priesthood to people. So they're local priesthood leaders, they're doing their best, and they're communicating with each other the best they could back then, which was letters. And their history, a lot of it still is out there. Like, you can read this stuff. And so those are a couple of really good books that kind of help paint the picture, okay, how did we get from Paul and the apostles to the Reformation? 
Now, I know this is going to seem confusing because we're about to open up the whole world of Paul's epistles. We're going to get into these wonderful words that Paul writes, and that's future. Those are the books that come after Acts, but this is the end of the recorded history. And even though it's pretty evident that there is more history out there, this is the end of the recorded history. And maybe there is a divine hand in this because of how it ends. In Acts chapter 8, while Paul is at Rome, verse 17, it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come, he said unto them, and that speech goes from 17 through verse 28. Then we just have three more verses where they disperse, and Paul dwells two years, and then that's it. This is the end of the history. Paul is speaking to a group of Jews about Jesus and the law. Notice verse 23, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. And they're going to reject him. This little group in Rome of Jews are going to reject Paul's message. And Paul sees this as a symbol. And this very much is symbolic. So the last thing Paul says in verse 28, these are the last words of Paul in his recorded history. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Paul is basically saying the gospel and the responsibility of it to take it to the world is now being lifted off of you and handed to another group. Now, in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord is telling Martin Harris not to covet his own property, I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon, which contains the truth and the word of God. Now, section 19, verse 27, which is my word to the Gentiles, that soon it may go to the Jews, of whom the Lamanites are a remnant, that they may believe the gospel and not look for a Messiah to come who has already come. The Book of Mormon was given to the Gentiles to take back to the Jews. But the gospel, the responsibility, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant to spread the gospel to all the world was lifted from the Jews and placed upon the Gentiles. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now claims that responsibility. We claim to be the people that God has chosen in this day to take the gospel to the world. We don't say that boastingly. We don't say that with neener, neener, neener. We don't say that and point the finger. We say that with a very heavy responsibility. He has given us the Book of Mormon, he has given us what we still have in the Bible, and he has commissioned us to take the restoration, the restored keys, the covenants of the temple, and the truths of the Book of Mormon to his children through all the world. Now, if we don't do it, then the Lord will pass it to another group of people. 
His work is going to be completed before the Savior comes. But let's be the people that carry it out. Let's take the baton from Paul. And for the rest of this year, as we study the words of Paul, let's hear his words with our hand outstretched to receive the baton from him and finish the race and prepare a people for the coming of the Savior and preach in every country, in every language, and bring people back to the covenant. That, just like Jesus told Paul, testified that Paul would do that. We need to bring them to the gospel that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. May we be that people. May we take that baton and preach his gospel and tell our story as boldly as Paul told it is our prayer for all of you. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover Romans chapters 1 through 6. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.